So good morning. I want to put up a, a sort of an announcement. Those of you who may have come to the lecture last night, we sold out of Rabbi Joseph Shulam's books. And you can buy them uh, uh, from their website, nativia.org, but they don't give you the discount that we do. <laughs> so if you ask for the Lanier discount code, they'll give it to you. And uh, uh, make sure that you get a chance to get those books. I'm sorry we sold out. Uh, we had more than we thought we would need, but we clearly didn't have enough. And I tell you that to tell you that we've got a really exciting class. Uh, those of you I don't know, I'm Mark Lanier, and I have the honor and privilege with Brent Johnson of, of teaching this class, and, and uh, I thank you for being here. I've got two people who are my special guests today. The first is Scott Sager. Scott is going to help me interview Rabbi Joe. Scott introduced me to Rabbi Joe. Scott used to be the campus pastor at, uh, uh, I, I can't ever remember the name of the school. It's, um, it is, it's is in the, Austin, the Texas. University it, it is, of Austin. It is in Austin, Texas. Tech beat him in basketball last night. <laughs> University of Texas, the, the cows. And... Um, um, it's a specific breed of cow. I don't quite remember which one. Angus, Longhorn, something. And Scott then preached for a, a wonderful church in Dallas for a long time. And now is a vice president at Lipscomb University, my alma mater. And uh, Scott's a dear friend. Scott's the one who, when we had the flood, took 30 Lipscomb University students and brought them here to mud out for almost a week uh, on their own dime to help us through this church. And uh, it was well, a the, wonderful the, the matchup of, of, of really? the, the Lipscomb people There's coming no to the Baptist here. church and just working to the glory of God. And uh, oh. he also puts together, those of you who go to the summer celebration at Lipscomb, which a number of you have gone, Nadia and some others have gone, um, he's uh, the one who puts all of that together. And uh, uh, so he's going to help me interview. Would you join me with a Texas welcome to the Texan, Scott Sager. So Na Nash Lipscomb is in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you go there, Scott, I'm scooting you over one. If you you got to stay close to Joe. If you go there, uh, uh, he'll give you a Texans for Lipscomb shirt because he's Texas proud. So uh, uh, good to have Scott. And then next, I'm going to introduce Rabbi Joseph through some questions, but I want you to join me in giving a warm welcome from Jerusalem, Rabbi Joseph Shulam. Thank you, sir. Okay, so um, uh, Rabbi, uh, if, if you were in Jerusalem today, you would be doing what? Working in the office. Because you have uh, an assembling of believers in Jesus, Yeshua, but when do you all meet? We meet on Saturday. Because that's the Sabbath. Because that's the Sabbath. Okay. Now, I would like, uh, uh, I'm going to give everybody a thumbnail sketch of you. I just lost the mic pack. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We got it. I'm going to give everybody a thumbnail sketch. You were born in Bulgaria. Uh, at the age of one, moved to Jerusalem. Uh, was brought up there by your parents who were secular Jews. Um, 
you uh, spoke Spanish at home because you were a Sephardic Jew. What is, what's a Sephardic Jew? Sephardic Jew is Jew that was in Spain. The golden era of Jewish history is the 500 years of the Jews in Spain during the Muslim occupation of Spain. The, the center of Islam between the 9th century to the 15th century was Spain. And uh, they're the ones who built the Alhambra, Granada, Cordoba. All these are, you know, and, and the Spanish language is highly influenced by the Arabic and the Spanish food is influenced by Arabic uh, Islamic traditions. So the Jews were flourishing in that time. Uh, it was called the golden era of Jewish history in Spain until the Christians reoccupied Spain and started to persecute the Jews and was the Spanish Inquisition. And that's why, for example, if you have Spanish, Hispanic people with the name of Oliveira, Palmera, Pereira, Ferreira, uh, Rodriguez, uh, Gonzalez, Nunes, these are all names of Jews who were forced to convert to Catholicism by the Catholic Church. And, uh, and so the Jews that didn't convert were expelled in 1492 by Ferdinand and Isabella. And my family was expelled from Spain in 1492, but they retained the Spanish. The biblical name for Spain is Sepharad. It's mentioned in the verse 20 of the prophet Obadiah. And, uh, and so Sephardic Jews are Jews that came from Hispanic background. Even though they were expelled more than 500 years ago, they retained the Spanish cuisine, the Spanish language. And my grandmother was born in Bulgaria, but she didn't know Bulgarian. She was raised in a home that spoke Spanish, Ladino. Interesting. So would you uh, greet us in Spanish, please? Buenos dias, hermanas y hermanos. And why don't you go ahead and greet us in Bulgarian while we're knocking this out? Dobar den, bratje i sestri. And you want to throw in a little uh, Italian? No. Uh, uh, Japanese. Japanese. No. Korean. No. What else you got? I have Arabic. Arabic. I have, Give us some I Arabic. have Arabic. I have Russian. I have uh, 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 German. I have French. I have uh, several. How, how many languages? Seven. Officially seven. Officially seven. You want to give your chime in? Yeah, yeah he, he speaks more than that, but he uh, says seven's a good biblical number, so that's what he tells me. Uh, um, Change the subject. Don't talk about me. We came here to talk about Jesus. Well, we're, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to do both. We've got to know the, uh, uh, the, the, the authority of the speaker before we listen to what the speaker okay. has to say. Okay. Okay? So uh, uh, why don't you tell us how you came to be growing up in Jerusalem in the 1940s and 50s. How did you come to be a believer in Jesus? I got a high school assignment to write... Well, first, first tell them about your parents and uh, my eating, parents, eating pork My chops. parents were atheists. They had no religion. They despised all religions. And, uh, and uh, we ate all the good stuff like pork chops and ham and bacon. 
in my house. Uh, and that, that's until I believed in, in, in God and in the Messiah. Then when I believed in the Messiah, I understood that as a Jew, I better stop. Okay, so Jews were born to suffer. <laughs> okay, within the framework of that, which could explain a lot of, of my friend over there in Job, uh, uh, within the framework of that, tell us how you became a believer in Jesus. Well, I, I had an assignment, a high school assignment, to write uh, for a history class how Christianity began. I knew nothing about it. I never met a Christian, never talked to a Christian. And I got a bibliography from the teacher. The bibliography started, read the, the 21 pages article on Christianity in the Hebrew Encyclopedia. I did, and there it said Christianity uh, is divided into two major halves, the Catholic churches and the Protestant churches. And the Catholic churches are divided into two major halves, the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. And the Protestants are divided into two major halves, the Calvinists and the Armenians. And that, it went on and on. And the, the holidays of Christianity are Christmas and Easter and St. Valentine's Day. And the Americans think that even 4th of July is a Christian holiday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Continue. And uh, I wrote my paper and got a high grade, the highest grade possible. And of course, when you're in high school, you know, when you do something, you get a high grade, you think you're a world expert. <laughs> and, uh, but I never met a Christian until these two American families moved into our neighborhood. And the only reason that we went to look at the, you know, get to know them is because they had these 1960 station wagons. One was a Chevy and the other one was a Plymouth. Uh, both of them were the fanciest cars in all of Israel <laughs> at that time. Yeah. And uh, they had another thing that all the boys in the neighborhood were interested in. They had a total of 10 children and they had four girls <laughs> that were more or less our age. And they were blonde and American. And so we went there to get to know the girls. <laughs> so the, the missionaries uh, 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 come to Israel. They've got cars and, and girls. <laughs> well, we we're Jewish boys. What do you want? Uh, <laughs> you know, we're and, normal. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> decide, you decided to get to know them. You'd read the encyclopedia. You'd done your paper. Had you read any of the New Testament? Yes. How, how was that? I, I, the assignment was to read the first 10 chapters of Matthew and the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. I read and read and read, couldn't find anything Christian. There is nothing Christian. What you thought was Christian. That's right. What I understood from the encyclopedia to be Christian, there were no Christian holidays, no priests, no uh, churches. Nothing was there Christian in the book of Acts and in the Gospels of Matthew. And so, you know, I met these first Christians in my life, and I decided that, you know, as a Jew, I better teach the Gentiles some important things. So, so what did you teach them? How to smoke. 
they were willing students. <laughs> and their father came. It was a big guy, and he was very angry. And I tried to tell him that I know about Christians and Christianity, and that I wrote a paper about it. And he was still angry. <laughs> and uh, he said, do you believe in Jesus? I said, no, I don't believe in Jesus. He said, well, you better, you know, consider this. Jesus is either the biggest criminal that ever lived on the face of the earth and deceived humanity, or he is what he says he is, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that question, you know, changed my life. For months, I deliberated this question Finally, on the 2nd of September, 1962, I decided I had just studied about Pascal's wager. And I decided to apply Pascal's wager to this question. And I decided the safest thing to do is to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that day I got baptized. And that day my parents kicked me out of the house. And uh, two weeks later, I ended up going to high school in Valdosta, Georgia, by the, in the Hokifanoki swamps, two miles north of the Florida border. So uh, uh, your parents truly kicked you out of the house? Truly kicked me out. But they were not practicing Jews. But they were Jews. Christianity, for Jews, Christianity at least historical Christianity, is the enemy. You know, we suffered under Christians for a thousand years. Horrible persecutions. The Inquisition, Spanish and Portuguese Inquisition, was a horrible thing. Tortures and killings. If you, you ever visit Lisbon, visit the Hall of Records, there's 44,000 court cases documented, written by hand, of Jews that were burned alive by the church. There were Jews that were forced to convert to Catholicism, but if they ate kosher or celebrated a Sabbath or a Jewish holiday or lit candles on Friday night, they were burned alive by the church. It's, you know, it's one ugly history all the way to the 20th century. So that's why my parents kicked me out, not because of God or Jesus or divine or theology, because they thought that you know, their son joined the enemy. Hmm. So uh, what, what, by the way, I'm, I don't want to eliminate this, but what ultimately happened to your family? Did you reunite? Well, it took several years. And I, when I was in high school in Georgia, I sent a postcard every week. Never got an answer. And then when I finished high school, I returned to Israel. And the day I returned to Israel is the day that my mother got released from the hospital. She was, the two years that I was in Georgia, she was in the, in the hospital. She had been burned badly in a work accident in, in where she was working. She was a foreman in a factory. There was a fire. And she was burned badly. So I heard about the fact that she was released from the hospital, and they sent her to a convalescent home to rest a little bit and get her life back together. And I went there, and 
My mother talked to me, my sister talked to me, my father talked to me, and uh, it took several years, but my mother was the first. She, she sent a neighbor. I, I returned to live in the same neighborhood as a student in the university. She sent a neighbor and she said this, we are hearing from the neighborhood that you're observing you know, the dietary laws and celebrating the Passover. Uh, I want to know, are you a Jew or are you a Christian? I told the neighbor, go back, tell my mother if she wants to talk to me, she can talk to me herself. Hmm. So they invited me for Passover. But their Passover was, my father cooked pork chops on the porch on the main street so that the whole world will know that he doesn't give a hoot about their religion. And so, of course, they served pork chops. I didn't eat anything. But my mother asked me the question, are you a Jew or are you a Christian? If you're a Jew, then why do you believe in Jesus? Jews don't believe in Jesus. If you're a Christian, then why you celebrate the Passover and eat kosher and, and respect the Jewish traditions? I said, you won't understand it until you read the New Testament. She said, but I don't have a New Testament in Bulgarian. I said, tomorrow I'll bring you one. I brought her one. Two weeks later, she came to my apartment. She said, I read the whole New Testament. And I think you're right. Jesus was, because she was a communist. So she said, Marx did not make the great revolution for humanity. Jesus did. Wow. I want to be a disciple of Jesus, not of Marx. So I had the privilege of baptizing my mother in the Sea of Galilee, and then my sister, then my sister's children, and then finally, finally, my dad uh, accepted the gospel and was baptized and believed in Jesus. He didn't live very long after that, but I'm grateful that he changed his life. And for the first time in his life, he understood what sin is. Until then, he never understood what sin is. He was a government worker. <laughs> That's why he didn't understand what sin is. <laughs> but, but after he retired and continued doing the same thing he did in his job, he understood what sin is. <laughs> oh, that's marvelous. So you went to uh, a lot of different places to study, right? Yeah. T tell them very quickly about some of the places you've studied and the degrees that you've gotten, and then you and Mark can talk about the degree yeah. you hold together. Or the, the okay. same uh, professor you hold I together. I studied, of course, element, uh, kindergarten, elementary school, and high school. College, in, in, college. In, uh, <laughs> in Jerusalem two years, and then two years in Georgia Christian. Then the Hebrew University in Jerusalem is where I studied many years, several degrees. And... Uh, archaeology. What are your degrees in? I have a degree in biblical archaeology in the Hebrew Bible and a degree in chemistry, which I got from Lipscomb. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had wonderful teachers at, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, in Lipscomb. What years were you at my alma mater? I came in 1967 and left in 1969. And we had the same Greek professor. That's right. Harvey Floyd. Yeah, Harvey was a wonderful, wonderful, very, very humble and a great scholar. 
And he lived two houses from where I lived across the campus from Lipscomb. And he every day went to Lipscomb with a bicycle. But he didn't ride the bicycle because he carried books in his hand. <laughs> so he carried the bicycle. <laughs> that would be a, our Greek professor. So um, uh, our Greek professor was really stern. Uh, my friend Lee Harn tells the story about when Lee did uh, the final exam. We had the 267 paradigms or whatever that, that uh, uh, was used to, to teach us by Dr. Floyd. And Dr. Floyd handed him, uh, all of the students, a blank exam booklet. And the exam was just write all 267 forms complete. And Lee turned his in and uh, went by to get it a few days later. And there were a couple of red marks. Lee had missed, I think, two accents out of the thousands of words he'd written. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Floyd told him, Mr. Hard, you can do better than this. <laughs> Please rewrite this exam. <laughs> and had him rewrite it. So it was a stringent class with a stringent teacher who loved the Lord, who understood and taught the gospel. Amazing, life-changing man. But... I'm sure he was just as difficult. Did you all have issues with him as well? Yeah, but, but you know, what, every issue you had with Dr. Floyd was, you know, gracious. The Gnostic and example. And nice. Huh? Tell, to give us the Gnostic example. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Floyd was very intense in everything he did. He uh, was very, very deeply engrossed in the text of the Bible, the Greek text. So we were going into his class, and one of the guys stopped him at the entrance to the class and said, Dr. Floyd, you mentioned something about Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? Well, Dr. Floyd stood there and said, Gnosticism. Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? What a question. And it took 45 minutes. He missed the class. <laughs> he took 45 minutes to explain to us what is Gnosticism. Ah, uh, college days. Okay. And, and when I was, yeah. I'll have to tell you that about Dr. Floyd. I had a car wreck in December of 1968. And it was very badly wounded. Every day of the week. Dr. Floyd came to visit me in the hospital. Wow. Every day of the week. Wow. Wow. He came to visit me in the hospital. Very special man. Very special. Um, okay. So degrees, um, did we go through them all? Rabbinic. What's your rabbinic? Then after, well, what happened is this. I got married in Lipscomb. The best thing that happened to me in Lipscomb, I got married with a wonderful wife. She's still alive. She's in Israel now uh, because this is a short trip. If it's a trip over two weeks, I take her with me. But if it's less than two weeks, the ministry, you know, doesn't want to spend that kind of money to bring her to the States with me. So that's what I did in Lipscomb. Uh, studied Bible with very wonderful teachers, Dr. Floyd, John McRae, George Howard, great scholars, and uh, and uh, got married there. Then when I went back to Israel, 
Um, I uh, had some money from the insurance from the car wreck. And uh, I uh, didn't know what to do exactly. But I met an old childhood friend in the post office. And he said to me, Joe, do you still believe in all that Christian nonsense? I said, Albert, I invite you for coffee now in the coffee shop. And let me explain to you about what I believe. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. Because when you believed in Jesus, you knew nothing about your own faith, about Judaism. And he left, and that pierced my heart. And I said, the guy is right. What did I know about Judaism? I was raised in a totally secular Jewish home, eating pork and bacon and enjoying every bite. Uh, so, Right there from the post office in Jerusalem, I walked to the closest rabbinical college, yeshiva, that I knew, very famous one. I went to the rabbi, and I said, I'm a Jew, but I believe in Jesus, but I want to know about Judaism. I don't know anything about Judaism. He said, did you come to teach or did you come to learn? If you came to teach, we have enough teachers of our own. We don't need you. If you came to learn, you can't learn here with Jesus. Put Jesus on the shelf and then come to learn here. I said, okay. He accepted me and I put Jesus on the shelf for four years. I didn't take him out of my heart, but I put him on the shelf. And I studied four years to be a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi. It was wonderful. At the end of the four years, there was the, the ceremony of laying on of hands to make me a rabbi. Three rabbis are sitting there, not from our yeshiva, from other institutions. And they say, Rabbi Goldstein told us that you used to believe in Jesus. Do you still believe in Jesus? Rabbi Goldstein was there. I said, Rabbi Goldstein told me, put Jesus on the shelf. Give me 24 hours, I will dust him off the shelf. And tomorrow <laughs> I'll give you an answer. So I went home, I talked to Marsha, talked to God, I prayed, I asked the Holy Spirit to fill me, and the next day I go back to the rabbinical court, and they said, do you believe in Jesus? I said, actually, before, I thought I believed in Jesus, but I didn't really. But now, after I know Judaism, and I know I have the world of Jesus, now I don't believe in him anymore. Now I know for sure that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. <laughs> the rabbi smiled. They said, you're a nice guy, you're a good student, but the rabbi you're not going to be. And that's why I never used the title rabbi, you know, because they didn't make me a rabbi. But I am a servant of God and a preacher of good news, and that's good enough. And you are a rabbi to many. To many. Uh, rabbi to many. Um, uh, especially in the sense of a rabbi as a teacher. So let's do some teaching. Call out a story. Okay. Uh, or scripture. I would love for you to tell them the story about Muslim relations in your life. And what I'm thinking back to is the day your dad had some coins. How yeah, well, my dad used to go in and out of Arab countries and Jordan 
So he came back one afternoon and he laid some Arab coins on the living room table. And he usually, uh, you know, took his clothes off and made sure that the crease is together and that they're laid down right in the chair. And, and he left the money there. And my school in Jerusalem was the first school in Israel that integrated Jews and Arabs together. And so we had Arab students in our class. So I saw this Arab money, I took it, and I was going to show off to the Arab students about this money. Well, I showed it to one of the students, and he grabbed it, and he started running away, going home. And I ran after him. He got into his house in the Arab village, and I'm after him. He locked the door, and I'm knocking on the steel door a long time. Finally, his mother comes and opens the door. She speaks very little Hebrew. And I said, your son is a thief. He stole money from me. She shut the door and said something in Arabic and went off. And I kept on knocking. After a few minutes, she brings her son with his hair hanging in her hand, <laughs> crying. And she's hitting him with the other hand on the back of his neck. And he brings the money back. He gives me the money back. And I want to leave. And I've never been to an Arab home before. And she grabs me by the hand, throws me into the kitchen, sits me down and says, now we're going to make peace. Her son is crying. Every once in a while she gives him a good chop <laughs> in the back of the head. <laughs> She brings out a big pot of stuffed grape leaves, turns it over a, a big tray and says, now make peace, eat together. And we, I did, and then I went home with the money. And the next day in class, he was a much bigger boy than I am, you know, and one of the strongest kids in the, in the class. He stood on a desk, and said to the whole class, from now on, anybody has any dealing with Joseph has dealings with me. Wow, wow. And he was the first Arab person that I brought to the Lord. Muslim. That's amazing. That's amazing. So we have um, a Jordanian in class who, Yara, makes me food. Wave, wave, stand up, stand up. She, yeah. And she made these today. I'm not, I don't ah. generally share, Ma'amul. but I'll let you have one. It's a, it's a Passover cookies. Co coconut cookies. See, yeah. put it on the Shukran elbow here. Habibti. Show you all what you're missing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Makes you want to be a teacher, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm going to eat it later. Um, yeah, you can't eat while you're talking. That's so, right. uh, um, all right, David, King David, talk to us about David. I, I think you bring an interesting perspective on different scriptures, so I just want to pepper you with a few. All right, King David, he was the biggest rascal in the whole Bible. He's the only one that broke nine out of the Ten Commandments, and I'm not joking. 
he actually broke nine out of the ten commandments. The only commandment that he didn't break is the first one. God, one God is his God. And even though he broke the commandments, he had a living relationship with the Almighty. That every time that somebody said to David, you sinned, he sincerely grieved over the sin and repented over the sin. That's why God loved him. And he was a very calculating person. You know, he calculated everything, every step, very wisely. You know, he had chance, twice chance to kill King Saul that was chasing him. If King Saul would have caught him, Saul would have killed him without a doubt. But he calculated, it's not worth my killing the king of Israel. He wanted to show him that he was visited his tent during the night. So he took his sword and his basin for the washing his face. He wanted to show him that he was close to him, so he cut the edge of his coat, but it didn't touch the king. He calculated that, you know, if he does something like killing the king that is trying to kill him, he for sure will never be the king of Israel. So he swallowed it and patiently waited for the day that God would open the door for him to be the king of Israel. He calculated every step. In the story of Goliath, he calculated, what will I gain? Three times he asks different people, what will I gain if I bring down that uncircumcised Philistine? And he calculated every step of his ways, and God loved him. If God loved David... He can love any other sinner as well. Amen. It's a great, great story. Great person. Um, now, Scott, talk to us about the song. Oh, this is great. The Psalm 133, do you want to recite it in Hebrew for him? What it says? The first verse? Hinema. Hinema tovu manaim shevet achim gam yachad. How good and blessed it is for brethren to dwell together. That's the English translation. But the translation missed a little word. Gam. It's the way it should read, and it reads in Hebrew, how good, how blessed it is for brethren to also dwell together. That also is very important. Because it's good to have brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the faith, even if we're not all together. But if we're all together, it's doubly blessed. And uh, one of the biggest challenges for the Christian world today is unity. Let me tell you, when I, uh, I went to Israel in 1987 as a student from Abilene Christian. And uh, Joe is my professor, and so we've been friends ever since. And we spent a week in Athens and a week in uh, Rome before we went to Israel. And so all during that time, Joe was teaching us this Psalm 133 and how to sing it. We worked really hard to get that song where we could sing it and go back and forth and do the rounds. And So we finally showed up in Jerusalem and he invited us to his uh, congregation for Saturday worship and uh, 
he invited the whole Abilene Christian group to come up to the front and sing our song. And so we got up to the front, and we're all from Texas, and we're uh, introduced, and we began to sing, And we got done, and they clapped for us, and then Joe smiled really big, and he invited the congregation uh, to stand up and sing back to us. And uh, I've got to put this mic between my knees. Okay, yeah. So they stood up and they began to sing. Hine matov unamahim. Shevetakim gam yakad. Hine matov unamahim. Shevetakim gam yakad. That's the Texas version. And so I've never forgotten that we work so hard to say how beautiful it is when God's children gather together in unity. And they were working so hard to say the same thing back to us. And uh, it was a beautiful moment where we began to uh, really strive to love people across cultural and uh, other boundaries that might uh, push us apart. So anyway, I'll never forget that story. Yeah. I had to teach them the Texas version. Otherwise, the Texans would have a hard time understanding it. <laughs> Very well done. So um, talk to us about some other uh, uh, perspectives you have on Scripture. When, when, um, uh, uh, I, I love the fact that, that you bring a, a view to some Scriptures that challenges us to, to think through things and to see things in a different lens than then we might just, if we approach it with a Western mentality. Um, uh, so talk to us, uh, tell us a couple of your favorite passages. Okay. Well, there are some new discoveries that I've made lately. For example, the famous teaching of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mountain, that if they strike you on one cheek, turn the other cheek, right? We all think that Jesus, that was an original statement of Jesus right? But it's not. He is quoting, open your Bible. We'll do it in front of everybody. You want me to go to the Matthew passage? La, no, it, you can go to the Matthew, but let's go to the source. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 30. Because it's hard for us to understand why we should turn the other cheek to somebody who is abusing us, Right? It's hard. It's harder to understand it. It's easier to practice it than to understand it. But here it is, I discovered that Jesus was quoting this from Lamentation chapter 3, verse 30. Am I right? You're pretty close. Is let it? him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. That's it. Yeah. Uh, the translation, in every translation you lose something. But it is exactly what Jesus said. If, you, you, if somebody wants to, to slap you on the face, what does he want to do? What's the main thing he wants to do? He doesn't want to kill you. He wants to embarrass you. To demean you. To make you small. To make himself big in front of you. So in the book of Lamentation, that written by... Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch ben Neria, whose, whose signet seal was found in the excavation of Jerusalem. Brachiaus ben Neriau, 
Baruch ben Neriah, his seal was found. Maybe the same document that they, he had the deed of the land that he bought in Anatot in the royal archive. But that was written, you know, when Jerusalem was destroyed the first time. Lamentation. And uh, in that context, the writer writes, you know, that if, you know, if you turn your other cheek, literally, if you turn your other cheek willingly, free willingly, bravely, you're embarrassing the one that wants to embarrass you. And in the context of Roman occupation in the days of Jesus, this is a very strong statement. Another one of these things is, I will make you fishers of men. Where did Jesus get that idea? It's in the law of Moses. It's in Genesis, chapter 48, verse 16. But in the translation, you, you know, you're going to read multiplied. Grew into a multitude. Right? Yeah. But, but who was the greatest evangelist in the whole Bible? Who? No. Abraham. Abraham was the greatest evangelist in the whole Bible. How many people did he have in his camp? How many people followed him? from Haran to the land of Canaan? We don't know. We know. No, I mean, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. If you're waiting on an answer, it's going to be a while. Well, if you, if in Genesis chapter 12, it says that, I think it's verse 4, that Abraham took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and his family, and the souls which he had made in Haran. To make souls is to evangelize. How many souls did came with him? In chapter 14 of Genesis, you have 318 soldiers, fighting men, between the age of, fighting men is between the age of 20 and 50. Well, if you have 20 or 50, They have wife, they have children. So if you multiply by a wife and a child, 380, you get a 1,000 people. Close to 1,000 people, right? These are the souls which he had made in Haran, which he convinced that there is one God, not idols, and they followed him all the way to the land of Canaan. Mark, I have to show you the Hebrew to see the, the word fish. Well, that text. The, the English Standard Version yeah. politely gives you a footnote for multitude, and down in the footnote says, or let them be like fish. Ah, okay. I didn't know about the footnote, but in Hebrew it's very clear. <laughs> uh, dog. Dog is fish. Yeah. So, Who is he, he is she, and a dog's yeah. a fish. That's Hebrew. Yeah. And so, so Abraham was the greatest evangelist. So when Paul says, I will make, to his disciples, I will make you fishers of men, I will make you like Abraham to teach all the pagans, all the Gentiles, that there is one God 
who created the heavens and the earth, and one Savior, his Son, whom he saved, sent to the world to suffer because he loved us so much. But Jesus took the fishers of men from this text in Genesis. That's great. Okay, give us some more. Ask me a question. Okay. I'll ask you one. We got about seven minutes. Okay. Um, Was Paul married? And uh, if he was, how did he lose his wife? The context of this uh, idea of the Paul saying, be like me, uh, unmarried, is in 1 Corinthians 7. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he makes a, a, a ruling. You know, he, he makes, in 1 Corinthians 7, he, he legislates two laws. Because Paul was a lawyer, like Mark. How do we know he was a lawyer? Because he studied with the su- top judge of the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. Uh, he didn't study macrame or to cook spaghetti. Yeah. He studied law. Gamaliel was a law teacher. He was a judge. Gamaliel is Gamaliel to us from Texas, by the way. <laughs> okay. So he makes two rulings in, in 1 Corinthians 7. The first ruling, he says, is the, if there is a case of abandonment by one of the parties of the marriage the other party is free to remarry. It's an interesting ruling in the context of the legal system in the first century Judaism. The second ruling he makes is that if you're a a Jew, don't become a Gentile. The way he says it is very, uh, you know, flowery language. If you're circumcised, don't uncircumcise yourself. There is no such a glue invented yet. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the second ruling is, if you're not circumcised, don't circumcise yourself. You can't afford it. And so uh, these two rulings he makes there. But he calls himself agamos. Gamos means married in Greek. The word I in front of the, the, reverses it. So, unmarried in English, translated in in all the translations in English, unmarried. You cannot be unmarried if you were not married first. And he could not have held his position, his job, in the Sanhedrin, unless he was married. What What would Paul call somebody who had never been married? A virgin. So that's the third category, right? Or a spinster or a bachelor. And the words in Greek, virgin is in the same text. And in the same chapter, he pairs the unmarried with the widows. Yeah. What does a a spinster or a bachelor, what does he have to do with widows? Only somebody who was married and is no longer married has something in common with a widow who was married and is no longer unmarried. That's why he pairs them together. He doesn't pair the virgins in the same chapter with the unmarried. And so you think that Paul's wife left him, don't you? I think that he left his wife. He, he, he didn't return home for 14 years to Jerusalem. That's what I mean. So tell him yeah. what, what that is. Wait, 
It's got to be the woman's fault. If uh, no, if 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 uh, you abandon your wife for six months and have no communication with her for six months, you're automatically divorced by by rabbinical law. Abandonment is for six months is a divorce. Okay, I got to argue this point. Okay. But Paul was pretty emphatic that you should not abandon your spouse absent certain, or you should not divorce absent certain things, whether it was porneo, whether it was, you know, the, the, the various, the abandonment issue, um, uh, adultery. Um, he was pretty specific about that. So why would he have abandoned his wife? Because he had that experience on the Damascus Road he went to Damascus to the house of Ananias. He was commissioned then to become an apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent to the Gentiles already in the, in, in the mission that God, that Jesus gave him through Ananias to go teach the Gentiles. This was such a magnificent, a big mission, a big task, a national emergency uh, calling. Israel, remember, Israel was occupied by Rome. Rebellion was brewing against Rome. The Gentiles are worshiping idols. And nobody is reaching the Gentiles with the message of the Prince of Peace, of the King of the Jews. And he is commissioned. That's why he says, I am an apostle out of season. The, apostles, the 12 apostles that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, they were apostles in season. He was an apostle, the 13th apostle to the Gentiles. He saw it as a national, universal task to fulfill the promises that God gave to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, that one day all the nations that are in darkness will see a great light. And know that there is one God, one creator of the whole universe. Paul took that so seriously that he actually sacrificed himself and his family in order to fulfill this commission that God gave him through the revelation that he received from Jesus on the Damascus Road. I'm not persuading. Go ahead, though. Keep going. Uh, no, I love, I love the idea of chewing on this. Yeah. So yeah. can... How much time does he have? He's got uh, two minutes. Two minutes. I think it'd be great. Is this okay? Yeah. If you've got a bunch of prayer warriors in here. Good. And I think if you told them what God is doing among rabbis and the, and the Orthodox Jewish community in Jerusalem and how they could be praying about that. that you see this uh, biblical literacy. I love it. I didn't know what it was. But I love it. About four years ago, in Israel started a movement. It's called 929. 929 is the number of chapters in the Hebrew Bible. From Genesis to the end of Chronicles, 929 chapters. And it's a secular movement. Secular people, Israelis, now it's several, maybe one, two or two million people reading the Bible every day, on their own. Not in a Bible study, at home. You know, they take their coffee in the morning, they read two chapters. 
every day. And then in every neighborhood, there is somebody that opens up his house once a week. Uh, to in, and anybody who wants to come from the neighborhood that is participating in this idea and discuss what they read and everything, no rabbis involved. Totally no pressure involved, no demands, no money, all free. And it's changing the atmosphere of the country. You can adapt the same system here freely. Yeah? Just listen. If you're buying insurance, you have to read the policy, right? Or you hire a lawyer like Mark to read the policy for you. Right? Because, uh, because, you know, it's important. You are uh, securing your life and your livelihood for your old age or for an accident or something else with this document. The Bible is your document, the, your roadmap to heaven. You cannot entrust your relationship with the Almighty God to anybody, not to pastor, not to priest, not to rabbi. It's your responsibility to know where you're headed, what's required of you. So you read the Bible for yourself. You know how to read? Read. It's not so complicated. A lot of questions that you have in your heart and in your soul and in your mind will be answered just by reading the Bible. Seeing the, and start from Genesis and continue because the Bible is, is actually one Holy Spirit cohesive book. It has a beginning and it has an end. Beginning of the world in Genesis, the end of the world in Revelation. So read the Bible. Biblical literacy is very important. I mean, I'm not going to say anything against rabbis or pastors or, or preachers or elders, uh, but they are doubly responsible to read the Bible and know product knowledge Product knowledge is very important. If you're selling, you know, socks, you have to know about socks. If you're selling coffee, you have to know about coffee. If you're dealing with your own salvation, you have to know yourself, where you're coming from, where you're going to. So this is very important in biblical literacy. I want to encourage you to get into it. We get into it. Okay. Um, uh, Rabbi Joseph has a flight to catch. He's got to get home. He's in for the weekend. So I don't know that he's got much time to visit. Um, uh, I've got a, a, a flight to catch, so I don't regrettably uh, have a chance to visit. But I know that you are in the care of all of these folks over here, so I won't feel bad abandoning you. You're on your own. Sorry, I'm just cleaning house up here. And now that the house is clean, would you, Rabbi, please bless us uh, in Hebrew and in English before we go. Okay. The ironic blessing from the book of Numbers. Yevarechecha Adonai v'ishmerecha Yair Adonai panavelecha v'yechuneka Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yasem lecha Shalom b'shem Yeshua Mashiach. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you. May the Lord be partial to you and give you peace in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.